Amen. Thank you, Evan. Good morning, Christ Central. It's great to be with you today. Those who are who I can see your faces, those of you who are outside, and those of you who are streaming virtually, we're glad that you are are here. Now, this morning we're continuing in our Advent sermon series entitled "Come, Lord Jesus," uh, which we've been looking at some key places in the book of Isaiah where the prophet speaks about the coming of the Messiah, the great rescuer of God's people. So this morning we will be continuing to look at one of those texts will be in Isaiah chapter 61. As is our custom, I want to invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4, which is in your bulletin. And I'm going to read a little bit of bonus scripture that's not in your bulletin. I'm going to read as well in verse 8. But this is, this is God's word. So the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And then verse 8, for I love, for I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong and I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My, My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. The prophet Isaiah elsewhere says that the grass withers and the flowers frayed, but his word endures forever. So would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We need to hear from you, God. We need to hear your voice this morning. We need to hear you speak through this book that you claim is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and would you speak to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls. Father, give me the courage, the willingness to get out of your way so that it will be you who speaks to us, your people. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We 
begin with maybe a rather shocking statement. I, I have a problem with the Bible. That's right. I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. See, I'm, I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire. But I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem. Now, although those words are not mine, they're borrowed, in fact, from a blog written by Pastor Brian Zond. However, there are words that I deeply resonate with. You see, because I have the exact same problem as, as, as Pastor Brian. My life looks nothing like the people that much of the Bible was written by, to, and for. And although there's nothing innately wrong with the fact that my story and my circumstances are different, the fact is that my story and my circumstances position me to misunderstand what the prophet is saying here in Isaiah 60, 61. To quote Zond again, he says, one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Church, do you hear that? The Bible was written by the oppressed for the oppressed. It's really important for me to recognize that because that is not my story. Don't get me wrong, I don't feel guilty for being a, a wealthy white American man. However, because of that privilege, as Zahn says, I have to learn to read the Bible while standing on my head. Let me try to make this plain. Our text, Isaiah 61, is written for the poor, the brokenhearted, the prisoner, and the mourner. Therefore, based upon my circumstances and my story, it's easy for me to acknowledge only the metaphorical that's at play, to assume that the prophet isn't talking about the materially poor or the physically incarcerated, but rather the prophet is simply talking about those who are spiritually poor and in personal bondage to sin. But the more I learn to read the Bible while standing on my head, I've become more convinced that it's not either or, but both and. That our text this morning is good news for those who are spiritually poor and in bondage to sin and for those who are materially poor, who are physically enslaved and who are feeling the effects that sin has on systems and society. To use the language from our mission statement, this text is not just about spiritual renewal, but social and cultural renewal as well. And it's in light of this that I'm going to test your athleticism this morning and at times ask you to consider engaging this text while standing on your head. 
So I invite you now, wherever you are, to, to do some stretches, to, to get loosened up a bit, and let's dive in. Much like the text that we looked at last week, our text this morning is in essence a proclamation of some really good news. But before we begin to unpack what the news is, we first need to understand who is delivering this news to us. Now, I realize that may sound like a silly question. I mean, the book is entitled Isaiah, right? And yet, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the prophets are often compelled to speak for someone else, but still speak in the first person. And that's exactly what's happening here in Isaiah 61. These words are recorded by the prophet, but he clearly does not intend for us to assume they are coming from his mouth. So whose mouth are they coming from? The original audience would have had to guess, but thousands of years later, we actually know the answer to that question. You see, on the first day of Jesus' earthly ministry, the first thing that he did was he went to the synagogue to teach. And out of all the Old Testament scriptures that he could have chosen, he chose to teach from this one. And after reading this text, he makes this jaw-dropping statement. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what he's doing there, he's declaring to be the one who, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord was upon. The anointed one, the Messiah who comes to rescue God's people. And it was because of this confession that we know for sure that our text is all about Jesus, that he is the bearer of this magnificently good news. Now, I think it's important to note here that, that bringing news, even bringing good news, was something that the people of God were very accustomed to. This was the role of the prophet, to speak for God to God's people, whatever God wanted to communicate at the time. And although oftentimes, as we read in the Old Testament, the news was bad, it wasn't always such. Throughout the Old Testament, we regularly hear the prophets reporting exceedingly good news, telling of this radical transformation that's going to take place when all things will be put to right. Which is why the words of the prophet recorded here in Isaiah 61 would not have been that shocking for the people of God to hear. At least not until they heard it a second time from the lips of the one who claimed to be, verse 1, the one on whom the spirit of the Lord resides, the one who the Lord has anointed to rescue his people. And that changed everything. I kind of liken it to the difference between me and Santa Claus saying the words Merry Christmas. You see, when I say Merry Christmas to you, I don't actually have any power or intention from that for making your Christmas any merrier. I'm just saying a nice thing that we say this time of year. I hope that you have a Merry Christmas. But Santa Claus, when he says Merry Christmas, he's not expressing simply his desire for your Christmas to be merry. He has full intention of making it merry by filling your stocking full of gifts on Christmas morn. The prophets brought the good news of the world one day being transformed, but Jesus is making plain in Luke 4 that he brings the transformation with him. This is exceedingly good news. So let's look now at how this transformation comes to be. What is this good news all about? 
and per our opening discussion, I want to look first at this transformation while standing on our feet, and then we're going to look at it while standing on our heads. It's hard to see this when we jump right into the middle of a book in the Bible, but at the center of this book of Isaiah, and really at the center of the whole Bible for that matter, is the problem of sin. God's people have time and time again failed to live the way that God had instructed them to live, to be holy and loving and compassionate and just. And that sin, that failure to obey God ruined everything. First and foremost in sin's wake being humanity's relationship with God. And it's because of that sin that verse 1 and 2, we are spiritually poor, brokenhearted, enslaved, and mourning. Because of our sin, we are trapped in our misery without any hope of liberation. But what the text reveals, the good news is that God has promised to deal with this problem once and for all. And it's at the end of our text that we find the proof. Look again at verse 10. Here again, the speaker has changed. No longer is the Messiah speaking, but now this is the voice of the people of God. And their message here is not one of of blind optimism. We feel like there's a good chance that things are going to work out. No, they speak with absolute confidence that the rescue is going to come about, that it's going to happen. They say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he, Jesus, has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Church, at the heart of our Advent celebration is the truth that ends Christ's coming. He deals with our sin problem once and for all. That we will be given the garments of salvation and the robe of Christ's righteousness. Meaning that in spite of all of our sin and because of our faith, when God looks at us, he no longer sees our record of wrongs. But he sees us clothed in the Son's perfect righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ makes a way for us no longer to be poor and enslaved and downtrodden because of our sin, but rather rich and joyful because we have been set free. And the good news is that this once and for all act for all who believe that, that, that through this act, through Christ's coming, our status with God is forever changed. We become sons and daughters of the King. At the same time, church, and we know this to be true, this liberation is an ongoing work for those who believe. And I say this for those of you I say this for all of us who who feel the bondage of sin in your life right now, who feel chained down by the sin in your life. What our text reveals, the good news is, is that Christ's coming is that he is setting you free. He is able. He is strong enough. He is loosening the bondage of sin in your life. And one day he will complete that task. And there will be no more sin, no more enslavement, no more bondage in your life anymore. Amen, hallelujah, that is the good news of Advent. And we could call it a day right there, we could say amen, we could sing our closing song, and it would be a good day. But I think there's more. 
And so now I want to challenge you to, to look at this text while standing on your head. And ponder whether there might actually be good news here for the materially poor, the emotionally wounded, the physically incarcerated, the one who has lost much in this life. Let's look first at the materially poor. No doubt all of us are poor in spirit, but what does this text have to say about material poverty as well? Look again at verse 2. It says, the anointed one comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And most of us probably have no idea what the prophet is talking about here, but the original audience, they knew exactly what he meant. The prophet is talking about the year of Jubilee. There's this ancient Jewish practice of leveling the financial playing field. You see, every 50 years, God ordained that his people would hit a financial reset button. All who had become indentured servants because of financial woes were set free. And every single debt was wiped clean from the record books. This is the good news for the material poor. Our text is saying that the transformation that Jesus brings absolutely and it must involve the elimination of the haves and the have-nots. That Jesus comes to bring a financial flourishing for all. And so the good news for those of you who are struggling financially is that this is good news for you too. What about the brokenhearted? First glance, we might assume this text is just speaking about the brokenness that we might feel over our sin. And yet if we look at the final picture that we have of what this transformation that the Messiah is bringing will look like in Revelation 21, it says the Messiah promises to wipe away every tear. He promises no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. And I think in a lot of this, we must assume that this good news is for those of us who are hurting, who are sad, who are devastated by our circumstances, by our story, by the wrongs that we have tasted in this life. For those of us who are emotionally suffering, whose hearts are broken, this is good news for you too. But what about the captives? What is the good news for them? Here especially, I think it's important to remember the context into which our text is written. The ancient Near East was often, more often than not, captivity and imprisonment had very little to do with one's own law breaking. People were imprisoned unjustly all the time. And it's those people the prophet is talking about and talking to here, the setting free of the wrongfully and unjustly incarcerated. And church, if you participated in our summer reading a few years back and read Brian Stevenson's work in this area, you are well aware that the wrongful and unjust incarceration is not a thing of the past, rather something that is very much at play in America in 2020. And no doubt the prophet is promising here that the anointing one is going to set us free from our spiritual bondage to Satan and sin and death that we talked about. But verse 8 says, we serve a God who loves justice and hates robbery and wrong. Clearly God is talking about the setting free of the physically incarcerated as well, of those who are suffering injustice because of unjust authority, because our God hates that. For those of us who are experiencing injustice, this good news is for you too. But what about the mourner? the one who's lost something, lost something of immense value and worth. Our text says that the good news for the mourners is that 
they shall be comforted. I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but this church has experienced a good bit of loss in this COVID season. These past few months, I have sat with far too many Christ Central people who have lost a loved one. And in doing so, it doesn't take long to realize that there are no words that can bring comfort in these moments. There's nothing that I can say that will make the pain of, of loss go away. Because comfort's not given through words, but through presence. Amen. What mourners most often need is someone to patiently sit with them in the grief. Church, don't miss this. The good news of Isaiah 61 is that Jesus promises to join us in our grief. That's the beauty of Emmanuel, God with us, coming down to dwell amongst all of the pain and suffering that we feel. He gives you his presence. For those of us who have lost much, this is good news for you too. I have to admit, when I read this text standing on my head, it's a little more beautiful than the normal interpretation that I'm accustomed to. See, I see now how Jesus comes with good news for the spiritually and materially poor, the spiritually and physically incarcerated, for those who mourn over their sin and for those who mourn over the devastating losses in their life and in this world. The big question is how? How does Jesus not simply like the prophet declare this good news, but rather bring the good news to us, his people? And what the text reveals is that the answer is twofold. As I've already stated, the first way that Jesus brings about this transformation is through his coming down. That's what we're celebrating here in this Advent season, through Christ taking his, our sin upon himself and in turn covering us with his righteousness. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus who knew no sin, who lived a perfect life here on earth to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become, that's the transformation part, the righteousness of God in Jesus. This is where the transformation begins through this glorious supernatural work of God, the raising of those who are dead in their sin and giving us new life in Christ. But where then is the transformation for the physically poor, the emotionally wounded, the physically incarcerated, and the one who has lost much in this life? I want you to look at verse 4 and verse 9 again. It says, they shall build up the ancient ruins... They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. In verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Do you hear the parallels between our text and God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12? Remember God said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Don't miss this, church. This is God's master plan. It is, in fact, through the redeemed of God that the redemption of the world happens. 
through those who have been blessed and bound up and liberated and comforted, comforted, who are then in turn motivated to rebuild that which was broken, to raise up that which has been torn down. It is the redeemed of God. It is the church who becomes God's agents of redemption in this broken and fallen world. It's you and it's me. Jesus, the original bearer of good news, has empowered us to take this news to those who desperately need to hear and to taste it. And so it's in light of all this, I want to charge you this morning to walk away with two things, two things. First, I want to challenge you to try reading the Bible a little more while standing on your head. And my hope is that when you do that, you might see how the good news of Christ is a lot gooder than you thought. And secondly, I ask you to consider what it looks like to live into this reality that we've been talking about. To live into the fact that it is the redeemed of God, the beneficiaries of all this goodness that we have a job to do. That is our job to distribute Christ's goodness to others. And that means we need to go after the spiritually poor and enslaved and downtrodden through proclaiming the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for them. And at the very same time, we need to go after the physically poor, the emotionally wounded, the physically incarcerated, and the one who has lost much in this life. As our text says, we must be willing to get our hands dirty and do the work of rebuilding all that is broken in this place that God has called us to. And if we do, then and only then will Christ's blessings flow as our closing hymn states, far as the cursed is found. Christ central, may we rejoice and marvel at the good news that Christ brings to us. And may we in turn labor for the glory of God and the good of our city. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, to each and every one of us. That through your coming down, we are transformed. Father, I ask that you would meet us here in a profound way. You would strengthen us and encourage us by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.